So, a little bit about me as we get started. Um, my wife is named Fran. She will be here in the second service. We have we have known, uh, gosh, Steve. I've known Steve since 2008, back in the journey days, um, when this body was Metro East. Um, at, at that point in time, which was 13 years ago, which gives you an idea of how old I am. Some of you were like 12 at that time. And so go back with me just a little bit into the time machine. And I had planted a church over in O'Fallon, Missouri. So I live kind of on the opposite side of the moon of St. Louis from where you guys live. And uh, met Steve through some Acts 29 connections. And about the time Steve came out here, I mean, it had been a year he had been out here, and you guys were meeting in a bank building right around the corner over there, and I preached in the bank building right, literally. I could hit it with a, I couldn't, somebody good enough could hit it with a five iron. I would shoot it over here and hit this other building. But we could, we preached there a couple of times, and it was incredible to be there. And I, probably about a year after being there, Steve looked at me and said, um, this needs to be its own body. And we began praying about that and began praying about that with the, with the pastors of the journey and got to see that happen and got to see God do some incredibly amazing things. My sons at that time in 2008, one of them was about 11 because he had come over here with me the first time I preached and the other one was eight. I know that because he was born in 2000. I can remember his. The other one I have to think. And they're now 24 and 21. One of them's 24, married, lives in Atlanta, um, got married right before COVID. I got to marry him in Colorado the week before the world shut down. Matter of fact, we married him. My wife and I went on our anniversary because we got married in February. And while we were in Colorado, they started shutting down all the places where we were skiing. And when we left, they shut down Copper Mountain because that's where we were. And so we came back home. I'm a tad bit jealous where Steve is right now in the mountains. I love the mountains. I'll be honest, a lot bit jealous. And so um known Steve a long time, and I guess what I'm most encouraged about, it, if, if I can say this, is that I've seen God's presence in Steve's life change Steve. I've seen his marriage change. I've seen his life change. I've seen the way he loves Lauren. I've seen the way he lives out life with people, and I've just seen his life change because of the presence of God. And it's on that vein that I want to just allow God's Word to to speak to us this morning and in and, and this whole idea of God's presence. And I want to begin with this question, what hinders you from hearing God's voice? What hinders you from just hearing God? Now, let me make it in a real practical sense for a second. What hinders you from hearing anybody anytime they're talking? I got a phone call from a, somebody the other day who was an insurance agent. I'd been calling them, waiting for them to call me back. They finally called me back, got on the phone with them. And while I was talking to them, it was like I was in another world and I could not listen to this person because I was so distracted by what was going on outside. I was in my house, but right at the moment I got on this phone call, somebody decided to start chainsawing a tree. And while the chainsawing's going on, there's a kid screaming. So when you hear a chainsaw go off and a kid scream, like all these thoughts go in your mind from all these dumb movies you've seen in your life, right? And all I'm hearing is chainsaw screaming, thinking, well, I just got to go see what this is. So while I'm on my phone, I go walking outside and there's a little kid yelling at his dad while he's ch chainsawing this tree, cheering him on. I mean, he's, get it, dad, get it. And he's about seven, just yelling at his dad to chainsaw this tree. And I, for the life of me, couldn't hear this insurance agent because I was really distracted by what was going on on my end. But other so many things distract us when we really want to listen to people. If you can think back far enough to when you were in a, in a class that you really wanted to listen to, I'll say this. One of the things that most distracts me from hearing people is sometimes I just don't want to listen to them. 
And I think that's one of the major distractions for us in hearing God. We just don't want to listen to him. I was in a class, and I can remember this particular class that I really wanted to pay attention in because of it was near the end of the semester, and I really needed to hear this last couple of lectures. And I was distracted by, by this girl who was sitting in front of me because the, this was way before computers and phones, all that kind of stuff. But she was on her, she had this like typewriter thing, because we didn't have computers then, but it was a typewriter that had a little screen on it like this that you could actually type in one line at a time. Anybody have one of those back in the day? And she was typing like this in the class. Now, I don't know if you've ever been in a class with somebody typing on their computer in there, and I was sitting right next to her. I'd never seen one of these to begin with. I was a little bit enamored with it. And then the noise of it, and I couldn't pay attention just because of what she was doing. And it so distracted me that half the class I was trying not to, well, I was trying to be the horse with the blinders, trying not to pay attention to what she was doing. My son, who's now married in Atlanta, did this brilliant thing one day. He FaceTimed me with his phone on his chest shooting at his computer and when I picked the phone up he had sent me a text and said hey I'm in class and I thought so when he started FaceTiming me in class I thought well, he wants to show me something what he was showing me was the masters this golf tournament on his computer while he's in class so that so his phone is sitting in his lap and he's shooting the masters and his accounting teacher teaching at the same time and he texted me isn't this awesome I thought to myself, yes, this is awesome. I was a little bit jealous, a little bit proud, and a little bit disturbed all at the same time, right? <laughs> what distracts you from hearing people that you want to listen to? Because there's so many things. Sometimes it's us. Sometimes it's in our own daydreams. It's our own head. It's other people. Sometimes we just don't want to listen. What hinders you from hearing God? His voice can be hard to discern at times, Right? so many other voices speaking to you. you. Let, me, let me demystify this just to, for just a moment. God's word tells us in Hebrews that this is the living voice of God, that God actually speaks through this to us. Like this, this is alive. It's not just a, a book. Sometimes we forget that and this becomes just a history book for us or it becomes a, a manual for, for programmatic living or it becomes just a, a list of rules that that guide our morality instead of the living voice of God speaking in us and through us. And so one of the things I just want to encourage you with this morning about just hearing God is that every time we get a chance to open this, we get a chance to hear God speak to us. We get to hear God's voice. Sometimes, though, the only time we hear God's voice is through somebody else's voice. You hear it through another preacher. You hear it through a friend. You hear it through somebody in a Bible study. And I just want to ask you, when was the last time you heard God's voice? When was the last time you listened to God's voice? Well, let me help one more piece of this demystifying. I, I don't know exact percentage, but way more than 95% of the Bible has to do with two things. It's God revealing himself, who he is, and how he's come to redeem us to be with him, which he created us for. That's the first part of that. And the second part of that is than who we are in Christ. If he's redeemed us to be with him, to be right with him so we can be with him, then who are we in Christ? And that's what Jesus calls this, this righteousness of God. And then there's the second part Jesus said that he said, seek, seek the righteousness of God, but he also said, said seek the kingdom of God. And then the rest of the scripture is just how we live out this life under the kingship of Jesus within his rule and his reign. 
And so almost all of the scripture talks about who God is and who we are and then how we live that out under his reign. Most of what we seek God's voice for, though, if I'm honest, is is prayers like this. God, where am I supposed to go and do such and such a job? How do I know I'm supposed to date such and such a person? How do I know I'm supposed to marry? How do I know I'm supposed to leave this job? And we start asking what Jesus said in that same verse, Matthew chapter 6, verse 33, when it says, seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. The last part of that verse says, and all these things will be added to you. Most of what we're trying to hear from God is all these things. When the Bible, for the most part, 95, 99% is full of God's righteousness and the kingdom. And I think part of the reason we have such a hard time hearing God's voice is that we're just asking the wrong questions and we're not listening to what God's trying to tell us. So just to give you a for example, a bunch of scriptures here I want to give you just God's voice speaking to us. This isn't going to be on the screen. I just want you to hear these. These are, these are one another's. There's 59 of these in the New Testament. Here's just eight. Mark 9.50 says, be at peace with one another. These are kingdom living John 13, 13, 14, wash one another's feet. John 13, 34, a new commandment I give to you, that you love one another. Romans 12, 10, be devoted to one another in brotherly love. Romans 14, 19, build one another up. Romans 15, 7, accept one another. Romans 15, 14, admonish one another. Romans 16, 16, one of my favorite, greet one another with a holy kiss. You have so many encouragements of how we're to live, and that's God's voice telling us how to live, and yet how many of us are going to spend the next day trying to figure out how we can encourage one another, build one another up? When really what we're trying to hear from God is, God, do you really want me to stay at this job or go over here? And I think sometimes we have such a hard time hearing our dad's voice about jobs because we're not doing and listening to our dad's voice just about, hey, admonish one another, love one another, be with me, listen to my voice. I think if we're honest, the question isn't, why is it so hard to hear God's voice or what hinders you from hearing God? The real question is, what hinders us from obeying God? And that's really what we're going to look at today is what does it look like to joyfully obey God as we hear God? If God's voice is speaking to us, how do, how do we joyfully obey God? And I throw joyfully in there because God's word tells us things like this, that the word of the Lord is like honey to my lips, the psalmist said. And I just want to ask you, when was the last time the word of God was like honey to your lips? You ever stuck honey on your lips lately? Like most of us put it in stuff, put it in tea, you put it in other things, but try that sometime today. Go get some honey and just stick it on your lips and go, that's not good. You can't say that. When was the last time the word of God was like that for you? Because God says that's what it is. It also says this, the commandments of God aren't burdensome. And so there's, there's a joy in hearing God and following God. How do we do that today? Let's talk about that as we walk into this text together. In verse 9 of, of this passage in Acts, we're going to walk into this. is Acts chapter 16, if you want to f- walk along with me in your Bibles. It says, And a vision appeared to Paul in the night. A man of Macedonia, which was a place in Greece, a part of as a country within the whole structure of the Greece city-states, was standing there urging him and saying, Come over to Macedonia and help us. And when Paul had seen the vision, immediately we sought to, to go into Macedonia, concluding that God had called us to preach the gospel to them. There was a vision Paul heard, and there was a discernment that was needed, and Paul discerned, like, I think we're supposed to go over here to Macedonia. I think some of us believe that if God would speak to us in visions, we would have a lot hard, easier time hearing God. And, and can I just say to you, if God showed up on your bed tonight and actually spoke to you, what would you tell people the next morning? Like, how many of you would be too afraid to tell people? Because how would that conversation go with your wife 
or your roommate or someone in your small group, hey, like, God showed up and sat on the edge of my bed, and you need to hear what he said to me. Like, because you know this would happen. Really? What did he look like? That's not the point. God sat on the edge of my bed, and, and people, I mean, and then you would have to try to start remembering, right? Like, you ever tried to remember anything at 3 o'clock in the morning that you heard? Like, you had a dream, and you woke up, and you wanted to write it down? How easy is that? It doesn't happen. And you'd spend the whole next day trying to go, what exactly did God tell me? Here's the good news. God's written it down. The vision that Paul got, all it did was confirm what Jesus had spoke to him earlier in his ministry. You're going to go to the Gentiles and preach the gospel so that when God came to him in this vision and said, go to the Gentiles and preach the gospel, Paul didn't have to pray a lot. He was like, well, God's already told me this. This affirms God's voice and God's word, what he's already spoken. Is this now? Two verses before this, God had stopped them from going somewhere else. So Paul's saying, okay, I guess we're discerning. This is God saying we need to go to this place. And so there's, there's some obedience that's going to have to happen now. And it says this in verse 11. So setting sail from Troas, we made a direct voyage to Samothrace and following day to Neapolis and from there to Philippi, which is a leading city in the district of Macedonia, a Roman colony. We remained in the city for some days. They went 200 miles by sea in probably two to three days. There was great travel, which meant great cost. Here's the first thing I want you to hear about joyful obedience. If you and I are going to walk in joyful obedience to God, is there's going to be a cost. I want you to think about it in your own life. Something that God's asking you to be about right now, that you know he's asking you to do, that it's, it could be as simple as love your neighbor. And you start thinking about the cost of loving your neighbor. One of the first costs that probably happened to Paul, which happens to us, is just our comfort. I think one of the biggest hindrances to most of us as followers of Christ from being obedient to the things of God when we hear God actually speak to us is we just don't want to give up the comfort we have in order to follow Christ in the way he's asking us to do it. And we could probably just end right here today and just say, what do we do with that? What do we do with the fact that most of the things God asks us to do is uncomfortable and for most of us, we spend the majority of our life trying to figure out how to be more comfortable instead of less. And can I just encourage you this morning? Like the call to follow Jesus was never one of comfort. Read the New Testament. I mean, the whole deal was there was a cost. And here's the beautiful news about following Jesus. Everything that makes us right with God so that we can be with God, that cost is on Jesus, all of it. There, there's no right standing before God that you can pay or do or work or give or serve or you can't work in the middle school ministry enough for God to be right with you. And I was a student minister for 11 years. That's a hard task. But you can't do enough stuff to be right with God so that you can be with God. All that cost is on Jesus. But if you're going to follow Jesus, he said things like this. You're going to have to take up your cross and die daily. Dying daily doesn't make you right with God. But when you become right with God and you enter the kingdom of God, death will come. And here's the first thing. Like most of us don't want to listen to God because we know there's a cost. And so if I ask you those two questions again, what, what hinders you from hearing God's voice? Most of us have discerned, like when I listen to God, there's a cost. And so I just, I'm going to stop listening. And I'm just going to do the moral things that God, I know God's asked me to do. I'm not going to kill. I'm not going to murder. I'm not going to commit adultery because that would cost me my family. And so we just live moral lives that really Mormons do, Muslims do, good people do that live down the street. And that doesn't make you a follower of Jesus. It just makes you a good person. 
But if we're going to obey our king, there's going to be a cost. And one of the first costs is just our comfort. I mean, Paul traveled on a sea, went over crazy distances to be in a place that God had called him to be. And it was definitely a cost to his comfort. There was a material cost. This wasn't cheap to get where they went. I've, there's this great website out there called the Roman, uh, Roman Times. And you can look on there and see all these different things that people have done, this history study. And it's not a Bible app. It's just a, it's just a secular app someone did on the Roman empire and you can see what it would cost to travel by sea different places and probably it would have cost them somewhere near about a month's wages just to get the people involved these 200 miles over the sea to go where they were going this wasn't cheap for them to take this endeavor to go do what they were going to do and i I know this following christ for us is is always going to cost us even financially and third thing is this is that there's always going to be a relational cost i can't imagine who paul had to leave behind if you're going to love your neighbor, just for example, like I know one of the things that we're always thinking in our head is like, what's this going to cost me in the neighborhood? Or, or if the neighbor is a work worker, what's this going to cost me in the workplace if I really love them the way Christ calls me to love them? And we start thinking like, am I going to lose a relationship with people I work with? Am I going to be that person in the apartment complex? Am I going to be known as that person in my family if I just love my son who's unlovely? There's cost. One of the greatest hindrances to us following and obeying God right now is cost. And I just want to ask you, how how does cost keep you from joyfully obeying God right now? Like, Where are you being disobedient because the cost is too great? Jesus said, count the cost if you're going to follow me. Jesus promised there would be a a cost. And just remind you again, joyfully obeying God's calling requires a cost. Verse 13 goes on to say, And on the Sabbath day, he went outside the gates of the riverside. Paul and his friends that were there that had traveled went outside the gate to the riverside where they, and I love this word, supposed. There wasn't a great confidence. They supposed there was a place of prayer. They'd heard somewhere there was a place of prayer. It was Paul's practice that when he came into a town like this, they would go to the synagogue first because he knew there would be people there that he wouldn't have to start with. There is a God and there is one God. So that's why he went to the synagogue. He would start with common conversation with people that believed in a God like he did. He was a Jewish man who would talk to Jewish people about this Jewish Savior that had come. He didn't go to the synagogue this time. He went outside because he heard there was a place of prayer. And he wanted to meet these people that were praying outside the synagogue. And he sat down and spoke to the women who had come together. Interesting to me, there was no men there. I don't have a real big, deep thought about that. I just want to say this. If we're going to follow God and be obedient to where God's calling us to go, it's going to require faith. And maybe this isn't a big deal to you, but in this culture, for men to encounter women in a spiritual setting like this was, was just crazy. It wasn't normal. It wasn't the normal thing for a group of men traveling as religious leaders to go encounter women like this in this kind of setting. Number one, they, they didn't even know who was going to be there. It said supposed, and so they supposed this was going to happen, and it, and it didn't. It didn't happen the way they thought. They showed up, and who knows what Paul thought was going to be there. Maybe he thought there was going to be this this gathering of this 
small group of really passionate people that were starting to figure out who Jesus was. But when he showed up, there was this small group of women. And immediately, Paul could have walked up on that and said, hmm, not so much. But he pressed into where God had called him and by faith walked into the middle of a situation that wasn't comfortable, if you will, and wasn't what he expected, probably wasn't what he thought maybe was going to be there. But he walks into the middle of this and, and I can't imagine what all happened, but he shows up on this river and there's this conversation that starts. And I just believe this for, for us and for me and you that like, if we're going to follow what God's asking us to do, the first thing we're going to have to really start asking God is, God, did you really tell me to do this? And what's beautiful about the Word of God is that when we start wrestling with, God, do you really want me to love my neighbor? You don't have to, like, go back and try to remember the conversation you had with God on the edge of your bed at 3 o'clock in the morning. You can go here and have a friend remind you, yes, God's asking you to love your neighbor, and yes, there's going to be a cost. The question is not now, what does it look like to love this neighbor? And yeah, we may need to pray about that and have some conversations together. But you don't have to ask yourself, is God asking me to do this? But that's one of the biggest hindrances for me is trying to believe this. Did God really ask me to do this? I know there are several things in my life that I've backed up on because I really started doubting whether God was in this. And so first thing about faith is that sometimes we make faith just this, this grab at air, like, like we have to be some kind of great, huge... Um, super giant person to, to, to have faith. And faith begins with believing that God's actually speaking and speaking to you. And God's made it as about as simple as he can for us by writing it down and putting it in a place where you and I can access it. Through the power of his Holy Spirit even makes sense of it. Through the believers we gather with have some context for it. But it begins there. Well, I believe that God actually said it. The second thing I think it's important in the faith thing is that will God actually do it? I think sometimes I believe that God's called me to love my neighbor and then now God's saying like, have fun, get after it. But I, I know this about the life in Christ that he's called us to that who is, who is the person who's loved the neighbor perfectly on this earth? God, Jesus comes, loves us, the, the unlovely neighbor. And I know this about my Savior. He still longs to love my neighbor. The question isn't, is he going to love my neighbor? The question is, am I going to let him love my neighbor through me? And so will I, will I allow him, will I allow myself to be a vehicle, a, a funnel, a, a, an access point for God to love my neighbor? Because God has called me to this. Do I believe God will actually do it? And here's the last part of faith. Like, will God actually, like, fulfill the promise that he said? Will he actually love my neighbor? And so at some point, if I don't believe God said this, man, I'm really going to struggle believing God's going to do it. And at, at the end, I don't know that my neighbor's going to get loved that well. Joyfully obeying God requires faith. And there's, there's no way around that. There's faith is going to be a part of us being obedient because at some point we're asking God to, to give us a picture of something that hasn't happened yet and what it's going to cost. We walk through that and then at some point we're saying, God, are you sure you want me to do this? But there's faith required in this. And I love that God wants to increase our faith because I believe for most of us, me included, that faith is, is a hinge point that we sit on a teeter-totter with and we ask all the time like the man who encountered Jesus, I believe but help my unbelief. 
And so I think we live in that moment every day, all of us, when it comes to obedience. And so God wants to increase our faith. Verse 14, here's how God increased Paul's faith, I believe. One who heard us was a woman named Lydia from the city of Thyatira. Tough word to say. A seller of purple goods who was a worshiper of God. And the Lord opened her heart. Like if you've ever been in a place where you saw God move, that increases your faith. What decreases most of our faith is we're not in a place to see God move. And so I just want to ask you, are you putting yourself in places to see God's move? Are you you obeying God in faith so you get a chance to see God do things? Because what increases our faith is we obey God, and in the places he calls us to, we get to see God do things, like open someone's eyes. And if you've ever been there, when someone who doesn't know Christ all of a sudden starts having the light bulbs come on, and you see their, their, their countenance go from defensive or angry or standoffish to leaning in to wanting to hungry to broken all of a sudden your faith in God starts to increase like God still saves people and it starts to stir your heart because it's an amazing thing to watch God in the middle of work bringing death to life and it's not just about salvation it could be that person that's a believer that's walked away from God and you get to sit down and have a conversation with them and in one moment they're angry and defensive and just steadfast in their sin and then all of a sudden you start to see them be broken and be humble and tender and it's just an increase of your faith to go gosh look what God did and I just got to be there I have a friend that's a nurse in the hospital and over the last couple of years walking through all that we've been through in our in our culture she said you know I've seen a lot of death but she gets to work in the in the maternity part of the hospital where babies are born and she said you know the only thing that makes my job worthwhile is I get to see new life every day she said I I don't know if I could do what I do long term if I didn't get to be around new life every day Um, one of the things that most increases you your faith my faith is when God brings life from death. Whether that's in a believer who's, who's living in the middle of death, our sin, or that's an unbeliever who's coming to life, or if it's just your heart who's been cold and God's stirring up life in you, when, whenever life starts being stirred in us through the power of Christ, faith increases. And in the middle of this moment where they went to a river to talk to some women, the Lord opened her heart to pay attention to what was being said by, by Paul. Here's the third thing about obeying God's calling, is that it's going to require God's presence. There's a cost, there's faith, but if, if we're going to obey God, it's going to require his presence for us to obey God. It, it required God's presence for Lydia to obey God. And it absolutely required God's presence for Paul to obey God. And I know this about you and I, somehow we think God's sending us out in a place to be obedient with him without him. And can I just remind you this morning that God's calling us to go with him. That God wasn't my, played basketball in high school, God wasn't my basketball coach who wore the bike shorts, had a belly out to here and had a Dr. Pepper can in his back and then told us to run lines while he sat on the chair drinking his Dr. Pepper. That's not your God. I mean, your God's out in front. Your God has not only led the path to where we are, but God continues to lead the path. And he says, come with me, follow me, was always Jesus' way. It still is. It, 
it doesn't feel like that at times. And you, can I tell you why? Because we've stopped listening to the voice of God that's saying, follow me. And we're trying to live a life of morality without the presence of God, which leads us to feel like, what are we doing? And why am I doing this? If we're going to joyfully obey God, it's absolutely going to require his presence. The Lord opened her heart to pay attention to what Paul said. Verse 15, and after this, she was baptized. Something happened. We don't get to hear the whole salvation moment. Baptism, as we know you guys have talked about a ton, is, is what we're going to do this at the end of the service. We take communion as, as a symbol, a sign, as an action where we get to actually encounter the grace of God that God's already given us through Jesus. And we get reminded as we take communion that I'm having to trust, have faith in the broken body of Christ and the blood of Christ. That's what makes me right with God, not what I'm doing. It's not a place that we make vows when we take communion a little bit. We're not making vows to God. We're hearing God's vows over us. I'll never leave you and forsake you because of my broken body. The baptism is the same thing. It's, it's a ring that goes on the finger that says, hey, I'm yours. And so this lady's getting baptized because something happened in her heart. Light bulbs came on. God saved her, spoke to her, opened her heart. And then it goes past that in her whole household. This wasn't a custom, a tradition where one gets saved, all get saved. I really think you see this in the New Testament, though, that sometimes when one person in a house got saved, that God's spirit moved through the whole house. And so this whole house gets engulfed in the presence of God. And she urged them, saying, if you judge me to be faithful, Lord, come to my house and stay. And she prevailed on us. God's presence is absolutely required for us to obey him. I love John 15, 16. It says, whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that will bear fruit. From apart from me, you can do nothing. I just want to ask you, like, what, what have you been trying to do with God this past week without him? I, th I think we do it all the time. We, we try to tell other people that they can be with God while we're not. You found yourself in that mode lately? You're trying to tell a child to be obedient when you're not? Parent, can I just wake you up a little bit this morning? If you're trying to convince your kids about the, the beauty of being obedient and you're not, do you not see the dissonance there? Do you not see the disconnect? Do you not see that God's stirring your own heart to obedience as you're trying to call your own child to obedience? You can't talk to someone else about the joy of being in the presence of God when it's been months since you've been in the presence of God. And yet it's so easy for us to do that as people of Christ. We sit in a small group and we talk about who God is like he's Abraham Lincoln and we haven't met with God in weeks and months and enjoyed the very presence of God who bears the fruit of his life in us and then works powerfully through us. Without his presence, we're not on his calling. Right in the same chapter, Acts chapter 16, right before verse 9, it says this. This is verse 6. And they went through the region of, and then it mentions these names that she started to read at the beginning, Phrygia and Galatia, having been forbidden by the Holy Spirit to speak the word of God in Asia. God stopped them from going to a place. Without God's presence, you're not even on mission with God. And yet I think countless times in my life I've walked into places talking to people about the very power of the presence of God without being in God's presence, reminding myself this morning as I woke up, as I sat on my back porch with my new puppy, I've got a new puppy, and you, you, gosh, it's like having a kid all over again, except this one you can put in a kennel, can't do that with a kid, which is beautiful about that, right? 
but I was throwing this puppy outside at 5.30 in the morning, and I was sitting there, and I was just saying to God, God, remind me that you're with me this morning. Even as gross and human as it is out here at 5.30 in the morning, remind me that you're here. And as I read your word this morning, remind me that this is your voice. And as I go tell other people that your presence is with them, remind me that you're with me even now. Psalm 1611 says that there is fullness of joy in God's presence. That's the God that has called us to himself. The joy of obeying God is his presence. There's a cost in obeying God, for sure. There's faith that's going to be required in obeying God, and it's absolutely going to require his presence to obey God. But the joy of getting to obey God is his presence. We get to be in God's presence when we're obeying God. God's with us, in us, through us, and we get to see God do his stuff. But the real joy of obeying God is getting to be with him. That's what you and I were created for. That's what you and I were made for. That's what God has redeemed us for and brought us back into his presence for. Let me get real practical with this as we get ready to close up. Every calling God has for you and I, whether a calling to home or community or church, has a cost. It's going to require faith, and it's going to require God's presence. Let me just give you a for example here. If you're going to love your spouse or your roommate or your neighbor or your daughter in God's calling the way God's called you to, it's going to require a cost. For your spouse, men, it says this, that God's asking us to give up our lives the same way Christ gave up his life for the church. That's a pretty high cost. That, that's not equivalent to like putting the toilet seat down, if I can just say that. It's a little higher cost than that. Ladies, it says, like if we're going to love our spouses, then we've got to submit to God and our husbands, which is a high cost. Not like the culture deems that word, but in a much different way. We submit to God, we die to Christ. In submitting to God and dying to Christ, you know what happens in a marriage? Everybody's hands go off the steering wheel. God runs the marriage then. But there's a cost. If we're going to love our neighbor, there's a cost. If we're going to love our neighbor, there's going to be faith involved in that, and then it's going to require his presence. And I, I, I think what happens a lot of times is this. like We, we desire to love our spouse and love our neighbor, and yet the cost of this is so high that it absolutely makes loving our spouse hard, and so it kind of pushes us back a little bit. And when we're not willing to pay the cost, we, we step back into this place that it feels like, like I'm on my own in this, and so faith becomes really, really difficult. And when we get that far removed from what God's calling us to do, we don't sense the presence of God in this at all. And obedience just doesn't happen. What's hindering you from joyfully obeying God's voice is calling. Is it that you're not hearing God? I don't think so. I think for most of us, it's not a matter of not hearing. I think it's a matter of what we realize is going to be involved. And here's the truth about all of these things God's calling us to on this earth, all the one another's and everything else. They're all secondary callings. And your primary calling is to be a son and daughter of the king. That's primary. It's the only one that's eternal. My wife hates this every time I say this, but our marriage is not eternal. It can't be, because if she dies and I get married again, then who am I married to in heaven? That's awkward. Right? 
And so marriage is not eternal. I know that sounds like, oh, why'd you bring that up this morning? My point is this. Every calling on this earth is temporary, even marriage, except one, being a son and daughter of the king. Let me, let me show you how that calling happened in your life. It, it required a cost for Jesus to, let me, let me back up, start back here. It required the very presence of God to come to this earth. Like God had to step out of heaven, put on flesh, enter into as his man, come into this place, not as a king, but as a servant, bend his knee to you and I in our sin and our guilt and our shame, crawl up on a cross. It required his presence to actually be here, to die for us in our place, right? It required his presence. It required faith because as Jesus walked the face of this earth, he had no idea. I mean, he knew as God what was going to happen, but he had no idea, I think, in his human flesh what all this was going to look like. And as God, God mind is all God, yes. And as human part, that's why there was prayers in the garden like, God, if there's another way to do this, let's figure it out. It required faith. I don't know if you realize that, but for Jesus, it required faith too. As God, he knew, but as the human part of him, there was tension. And then there was the cost. Like God's presence, faith, cost. And in that, we, in his obedience, we got to be sons and daughters. We get to be sons and daughters. But for you and I, when there's a calling that comes about and God's calling us to love spouse, love neighbor, the cost gets high, faith gets rocked, and the presence of God seems so far. This morning, you know, where, where do we start? We start right here. God, as, as a follower of Christ, if you're a follower of Christ, God, remind me that your presence is with me. Forgive me from not even being mindful of your presence with me. Forgive me for not meeting with you, for not being with you, for just walking through this life, forgetting your presence. God, help me by faith believe that you're with me today and that what you're calling me to, that you've called me to it and that you're going to do it. And then God, let the cost of what this is going to be be what it is. But let me see the, the joy of what it is to be with you is greater. Because for most of us, like just plowing through the cost isn't going to keep you being obedient. There's going to have to be a greater joy. And the greater joy is God's presence. So we're going to pray. And I just, I just want to ask you as we get ready to pray, we're going to, we're going to take a moment of, of repentance and, and then just really turning from and turning to Jesus before we take communion. But as we do this, like if you've been walking through the motions the last couple of days, the last couple of weeks, you've just been going through the motions of just being... The, the, the moralist who follows the things of God instead of following God? If you've just been the person that's walked after the stuff of God without being with God, listen, this morning, hear, hear the beauty of the gospel for you again, is that because of God's presence and the walk of Jesus into the cost, you and I are in the presence of God this morning, not because of anything you're going to do. We get to run to Jesus this morning because of what he's done, not because of what we're going to do. And so this morning, may, may repentance just be, God, my, my walk of obedience has been so joyless because I've left your presence. God, thank you that your presence is with me. Let's, let's pray. Let's just pray right now together. God, in this moment, may this be a time of confession. I just want to encourage you to let this be a time of confession to your Lord. You've tried to obey on your own. Tell him that. 
you've not been empowered and fulfilled by God's presence, tell them that. If there's been no joy, just surface obedience, tell them that right now. God, hear our confession. And then God, we turn from this and, and we turn to you and Maybe you just need to tell Jesus, like Jesus, Psalm 1611 says that in your fullness, there's presence of joy. Help me believe that this morning, God. I want to turn to your presence where there's fullness of joy. And God, in your presence, God, would you increase my faith? And as you increase my faith, God, would you allow me to see the cost as way less than the joy of your presence? God, we believe, help our unbelief. Help us believe this morning there is fullness of joy in your presence. Fullness of joy. So, Father, as we get ready to take this communion, I remember your words spoken over us. This is Hebrews chapter 12, verse 1 and 2. Therefore, since we are surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses, let us lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely. That's our confession. Let us run with endurance a race that is set before us. It sounds like a great picture of our calling. And here's our hope. Looking to Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith. Jesus paid the cost. He's the one who gives us the faith and who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, brings us into obedience, despising the shame, seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Father, thank you this morning for Jesus, your presence, who gives us joy. We pray this in your name. Amen.